Turn your Bible to two passages of Scripture. One is in Matthew 18, the passage that Brother Barry so eloquently read a little while ago, and then the other in Exodus chapter 20. In Matthew 18, Jesus, as often happened, was accosted by the unbelievers. And uh, they came to Jesus and to the disciples saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That question has been asked over and over and over again. It usually sometimes is asked by people of humble backgrounds, wondering who will really be greatest. Many times it's asked by Pharisaical-like people who uh, really want first place in the line. Jesus surprised them all. He called a little child unto him and set him in the midst and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, that he would be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses. It must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Then down at verse 10, take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. This is another way Jesus said, he that would be greatest must be the least. The way up is the way down. He that is abased shall be exalted, but he that is exalted shall be abased. Now this is a word of counsel and wisdom to every one of us, and especially to men, because men often want to climb ladders. They want to see who can get the most money, who can have the most authority, who can have the most power. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, God puts his finger on a very important key. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. This is the first commandment with promise. And the reason it is so important is because our fathers and our mothers are the first experiences we have with God. Well, you say, wait a minute, a father or mother is not God. When a little baby arrives, that baby knows nothing about God, nothing. All that little one will ever know about God is what he gets from mother or daddy. If that mother and daddy point him away from themselves up to God, that little child will look up and will come later to know the Lord God personally. 
If that mother and father neglect that, so many, many times that little child will never know the Lord. And more and more in our day, Father's Day 2003, there is less and less being said about God in the home and more and more about materialism and climbing the ladder and getting ahead and getting money and so on. A man told his son who had felt called to preach, that's the most foolish thing you've ever thought about. You'll never make any money doing that. And that's probably true. But is that the reason we're here? Are we here to make money? I know we have to have some finances to sustain ourselves and our family and our children, our home and our groceries and so on. But is that the chief thing in life? God said through Paul the Apostle, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That's a promise of God. Just like tithing is a faith promise, trusting God for the finances needed is another way of trusting God and that's faith. And faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Well, thinking this, I want to speak a moment about the history of Father's Day. A lady named Mildred Dodd honored her father, William B. Smart. Mr. Smart was a Civil War veteran. His wife had died leaving the children without a mother. And bravely, Mr. Smart reared his children on the prairies of the Northwest, eking a living out of the farm and out of the ground and from cattle and so on. Miss Dodd noticed her father through those years and honored him and loved him. And so she lived in Spokane, Washington, and she went to the city officials and said, my father's birthday is the first Sunday in June, and I think we ought to honor all fathers on my father's birthday. Well, she went to the preachers and to the city commission and city leaders and so on. They couldn't all get together, so they decided on the third Sunday of June in Spokane, Washington, they would honor the fathers of that city. The churches all did it. The city had a special article in the paper about it, and they began to honor their fathers. Well, Ms. Dodd didn't quit there. She started lobbying in other states, and after a while, it became prevalent across many of the states in America to honor their fathers on the third Sunday of June. The first Father's Day was held in Spokane in 1910. William Jennings Bryant, a very important man in early American history, spoke often of the importance of honoring our fathers. In 1914, President Woodrow Wilson made this a national affair by speaking of it publicly. In 1924, President Calvin Coolidge observed Father's Day in the White House and encouraged others to do it. On April 24, 1972, President Richard Nixon issued a proclamation, a presidential proclamation, making the third Sunday in June Father's Day in America. Many nations around the world 
have copied what America is doing, and today there's a lobby in the United Nations urging every member nation of the United Nations to honor our fathers on the third Sunday of June worldwide. In 2 Kings chapter 21, there's a sad statement. Chapter 21, verse 20, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh did. And he walked in all the ways that his father walked in and served the idols that his father had served and worshiped them. In verses four, five, and six of that same chapter, here are the sins of his father. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said in Jerusalem, will I put my name? He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his son to pass through the fire and observe times and used enchantments and dwelt and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. This was what Ammon did to provoke God to anger against Israel. Because of one man's wickedness, he spread that wickedness across the nation. In Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived, God is not mocked, whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. It's an undying truth that like father, like son. However, there are some exceptions. Hezekiah's son was Manasseh, a wicked, wicked man. Ammon had a son named Hezekiah who became a great righteous man, a wonderful king. So it is not a fact that cannot be reversed, but it is an important fact that sons become like their fathers. And if we would listen, we can learn some tremendous truths. Some time ago, I asked two fathers, what in your life will most greatly influence your son to walk in the ways of his father to righteousness? There were four answers. Number one, let my child know I really mean with my life what I say with my lips. I say honor God, but I don't go to church. I say honor God, but I don't tithe my income. I say honor God, but I have my little toddy at home. This man said, I want my children to know that I really mean what my life, by my life, by my lifestyle, what I say with my lips. Secondly, no compromise concerning convictions. Thirdly, design of love in the home with discipline. Love rings the bell in the home, but love is not Love is mere sentimentalism if there's no discipline connected with it. Number four, that my children realize why their father walks the way he does. Why does he do what he does? So that they don't just observe his commandments, but they observe his lifestyle. I also asked two fathers, why children walk in wickedness? The summary of their answer, 
lack of godly discipline in love at home. With this in mind, I want to suggest some things that can be a help to us on this Father's Day 2003. I asked some people to help me preach this this morning. I didn't ask them to get up on the pulpit and ask and help me, but with their words, here's some suggestions. I asked uh, some of our people, what do you think are the characteristics of a man that God can use? These were their answers, not mine. Faithfulness, humility, spirit-filled life, yielded to the will of God, seek to serve, dead to self, keeps his life in neutral so God can put him where he wants him to go. Someone who is already busy, not lazy, teachable, open to direction, one who will take a stand Sidlow Baxter wrote a book. The book was named Mark These Men. And in his book, he mentioned a number of men. He mentioned 13 men. I want to mention seven of them. A man who defiled, defied Baal, Elijah. A man who bore the brands, Paul. The man who braved the lions, Daniel. The man who routed the aliens, Gideon. The man who helped carry the cross, Simon of Cyrene. The man who rebuilt Jerusalem, Nehemiah. The man who instructed the apostle Paul, Ananias. So with that in mind, I want to mention four or five characteristics that can be a help to us today on this Father's Day 2003 to be the kind of men and women that God walk in honor of the Word of God. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing and dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And in Proverbs, listen to this. In Proverbs chapter 3, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. In chapter 4, Hear ye children the instruction of a father, and attend, uh, attend to no understanding. Chapter 5, My son, attend unto my wisdom, and bow thine ear to my understanding. Chapter 6, My son, be thou... Uh, if thou be surety for thy friend, if thou hast stricken thine hand with a stranger, thou art snared with the words of thy mouth, thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. And in Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but rear them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Number two, habitually set standards with no compromise at home. 
The family that has roast preacher for dinner is probably not going to rear children that will honor the Lord or the church. And most pastors can tell when that occurs. A word to the wise is sufficient. Keep that in mind. When the lifestyle of the home differs from the preaching from the pulpit, you can know that there will be confusion in the lives of children. If you do not like the convictions of a pastor, find some way to get rid of him. Find a pastor that has no convictions, bring him in. That might suit better. But if you have a pastor with convictions, pray earnestly, earnestly, earnestly before you allow words to go out of your mouth at home that would contradict the words from the pulpit. There have to be some standards. Standards on amusements, entertainment. Standards on dancing. Well, I visited a family one time years ago in our church and, and just before I got there, I heard through the door, the woman was saying, well, we just had a pastor that didn't say anything about dancing. We could raise our children fine. <laughs> but not long after that, they moved their membership. Because I'll probably never be quiet on that subject. I don't believe it's God's plan for men and women to mix themselves all up in embraces when they're not married. Another thing concerning mixed swimming. I cannot understand how men, I can understand women perhaps, but not understand men, how men could allow their daughters or their sons to get in a swimming pool with another guy or girl and expect them to keep their minds on heaven. Now, some of you won't like that. You're welcome. I love you anyway. But when you get home, and what you say at home differs with what you hear from the pulpit, you're going to cause confusion in your children's hearts and ears. There has to be standards at home. You, don't want, you want to know why Christian, listen, Christian, Christian, Christian young people are all sexually promiscuous? Because parents at home have refused to believe what the pulpit has preached. And you've not reared your children in that kind of nurture. I know there are exceptions to that. Let it sink in a little bit. You say, I didn't come to church to be scolded today. Well, I'm not scolding you. If your shoe fits, wear it. If it doesn't wear it, it doesn't fit, throw it to somebody else. Lots of people sit in church with a pitchfork. They hear something and pitch it back to their, somebody sitting next to them or back behind them and so on. If that's the way it is, okay. Uh, drinking. You have a little toddy at your house or you go out somewhere and have a social drink and you think that's okay and then your son gets a beer and goes out and has a wreck or kills somebody, hurts somebody and you say, well, son, why'd you do that? If he's honest with you, Daddy, I did it because of you. 
The only proper way to deal with liquor is to totally abstain from it. And you don't hear that from many pulpits today because the preachers are afraid of the people. I want to tell you something. I love you with all my heart. And sometimes when I preach, I feel like ducking out a back door. But I'll never, if the Lord gives me breath, I'll never quit preaching what God puts on my heart to preach. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm not afraid of the faces of people. I love you, but I'm not afraid. I'm more afraid of God. I fear God. And when God puts something in His Word, I feel like you need to hear it. And so I declare it. And if you don't like it, I love you anyway. But you'll have to pay the price for it. I'm not giving you my own opinion. I'm giving you something the Word of God says. Need to be convicted. You know, I, I heard somebody say, well, I'm going to teach my little girl to dance so she'll be, she'll just have all kinds of graces. She can just go around gracefully. So I feel like saying, what are you training them to be? What are they going to do with that dance? When they get in high school, they're going to go to a high school dance. When they get in college, they're going to do a college dance. And all the rest of their lives, they're going to dance unless God puts in their heart that that's wrong. And if you teach them to do that in, as little kids... What do you expect when they're big? That's the most foolish thing I ever heard of. And I'll never quit preaching against it. You may not like it, but I love you anyway. But that is wrong as it can be. It's a wicked sin. And mothers and daddies and deacons and others of you, if you're doing that, stop it immediately. That isn't God's plan or God's will for you. I'm not, you're not going to like me at all about this. You'll think I'm some weird weirdo. I don't believe that men who smoke should allow their children to see them smoke, or especially mothers. Now, my dad smoked all of his life. He wasn't a Christian. But he couldn't stand to see women smoke. One time I said to Dad, Dad, what's the difference in you smoking and a woman smoking? He taught me this, and, and it's true. It's true. Even though it came out of the mouth of an unsaved man. Later in life, his, his way was changed. But he said, the women hold the standards, not the men. And women, you puff that smoke in your little child's face. You're wicked. That's wrong as it can be. And you can ask God to help you quit, and he'll help you. I talked to Mickey Berkeley about it. He used to have smokes and drinks and liquor and all the drugs and all the rest. He said, the hardest thing I ever had to do is quit smoking. Right? Is that what you told me? Yeah. Was it worth it? You can quit. Now, on Mother's Day, I talked about women. I'm talking about men right now. God bless you, men. But that's wrong. It's as wrong as it can be. Some of you can't even sit through a service without going out to get a smoke. I heard Dr. Lee tell the story about a church that put in uh, some spitters, cuspitors, they called them. They had a big pot stove, and the men would get up during the service and go out and open that stove and put their smoke, their, their, spit their old tobacco in there because they were chewing tobacco. Well, the preacher bought some cuspidors and put them in church. And uh, 
After a while, he took them out. And some man said, preacher, why'd you take those cuspidors out? He said, he, they said, we missed them. And he said, that's when I took them out because you missed them. You get it? Now, someday they'll learn the right reason for tobacco. When I was a boy, you get a boil or you get a bee sting, take a tobacco leaf and put it on it, it would help heal it. How many of you knew that? That's the reason for tobacco. Not to put it in your lungs and cause you to have lung cancer. It's there to help heal. Same way with whiskey. When I was a boy, the only kind of medicine we had was whiskey. This may shock some young people. The only time I ever tasted whiskey is when I had flu or some serious illness and my grandfather was a doctor and he'd give us a little whiskey for that, for that. But you know what they discovered? They discovered that the alcohol in that whiskey is what helped. And they began to put alcohol in medicines. And today they have medicines. You don't have to go back to beer and whiskey and all that stuff to get healed. You can use the medicine today. God permitted that to come to pass. Habitually set some standards in your home. Number three, harbor your home in love. That home ought to be the place where people are loved, not criticized, not worn out, but loved. A church ought to be like that too. I want to tell you, we love people here. I hate it when I hear that somebody got in our church and got out and they didn't have, nobody spoke to them. That happens sometime. Some lady wrote me a letter. She said, I came to church one Sunday. You weren't there. They said you were in the hospital. And she said, I came and I left and not one person spoke to me. Well, I wrote her a letter and apologized to her. I can hardly believe that happened. She must have been sitting at the back door and run out right away. I don't know. Because we, we speak to each other here. We love you. If you're a visitor and nobody speaks to you, please let me know. Uh, I'll come back and speak to you. I try to race to the back door to speak to everybody I can. And Brother, uh, Brother Ronnie uh, Brown helps me with the other door over there. And sometimes our deacons do. But we try to speak to people. But there ought to be a place of love. Uh, somebody said uh, uh, about Moody's Church in Chicago, a little boy was going down the street and he passed up this church and this church and this church and another church and somebody said, oh boy, where are you going? He said, I'm going over to Mr. Moody's church. They love a fellow over there. The home ought to be a place of love. And then, men, there ought to be meaningful discipline in the home. Meaningful discipline in love. It's easiest to let the children go whatever they don't do. Just let them go. Met a lady the other day that had some children in her home. They were doing this and this and this. She didn't know what they were doing, didn't know where they were. She said, I just can't do anything with them. Can't do a thing with them. They just do whatever they want to do. Whose fault is that? That's the children's fault? Let's take a vote on it. How many think that's the children's fault? How many of you know better? And the home ought to be the training, use, training university of the world. And the men are the leaders of the home. The woman is the heart. The men, the men are the leaders. God planned it that way. 
And when he said, honor your father and your mother, he said, father first. Fathers, you're very, very important. Now, the modern philosophy among some of the now women said we don't need the men. We can get along just fine without men, and the women can rule everything. When you hear that, you just know they don't know the Bible. It's directly opposite of what the Bible teaches. Then the last thing, and I really could preach another hour on this. In Sunday school this morning, I ran out of time. We didn't even get through on dealing with this, what, what, uh, the man that God can use. The man in the home needs to help his children know the Lord. In many cases, it's the woman that does that. It ought to be the man that does it. It is the man's responsibility. There's a man in our church is not here this morning, but when his children were born, he brought them one by one to this altar. We knelt down here and he gave that child to the Lord. Today, one of those young men is a deacon. Another young man is a preacher. God honored what that daddy did. And men, it's God's plan for you to bring your children to the Lord. God bless you. The only hope in any of our lives is Jesus Christ. And when we let Jesus come in and be our personal Savior and Lord, God honors and blesses. If you're without Jesus today, let me urge you, urge you, with all the urgency of my heart, open your heart to Christ. Let Jesus come in and be your personal Savior and Lord. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that Jesus is the supreme one to whom we owe our honor and love. We pray that God's hand will be upon all of our fathers, all of our men, and <clears throat> all of the ladies, the young people of our church. Have thy way and help us to honor you with all we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, please. Jesus is tenderly calling thee home. What page is that? 154. 154. 154. As we sing in a moment, the invitation is open. If you're here, you've never been saved, I ask you to come to Christ. You may say, I don't know how to do that. If you'll come, we'd like to show you. If your membership is in some other church and God wants you at Glendale, you ought to come today. Move your membership here. If you've been saved but have not been baptized, you ought to come and make a commitment to Christ. Do what God tells you to do. While we sing, will you come? God bless you.